Man, Edward, you killed that. We can breathe. I didn't know I had a rock star on the movie I worship. That was excellent. Well done. Uh, good morning, Woodside. Glad to be here. Thank you for, thank you for joining us um, today. Uh, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. I'm just going to tell you up front. We've got a crazy story this morning. All right. The story is about Jesus casting out a whole army of demons. He sends them into a herd of the pigs, and then the pigs run off a cliff and drown in the ocean. Right? Kind of a crazy story. Um, about 100 years ago, I've mentioned this guy before, but 100 years ago there was this British atheist philosopher who was really famous. Like He was the king of the atheists back in the day, and he wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. All right? His name was Bertrand Russell. Right? Everybody read this guy, and it was a bestseller. Well, Bertrand Russell, in this book, wrote that it was this story, all right, this particular story that we are going to read today that offended him the most. He writes that it was absolutely unbelievable. All right, you've got Jesus finding a crazy man in a graveyard. He's supposedly possessed by an army of demons who then enter into a herd of pigs who go running down a mountainside into the sea. And then there's just all these dead pigs kind of laying around everywhere. Well, Bertrand Russell, 100 years ago, said this is just unbelievable. I cannot believe this. But I want to point out before we begin that people believe all kinds of crazy, unbelievable things. All right, I don't care who you are. Everyone in here believes something that someone else thinks is ridiculous. All right, think about all of the crazy stuff that people believe. Scientologists, do you know anything about Scientologists? All right, Scientologists believe in Xenu, who is the Lord of the Galactic Confederacy. He captured billions of souls from space. He brought them to Earth, and he put them in volcanoes, and then exploded bombs in the volcanoes to kill everyone. But thankfully, some of us survived, all right? So that's, that's kind of Scientology. Mormons believe that Joseph Smith found a couple of magic gold plates that were written in Reformed Egyptian. But how did he translate these gold plates? Well, he took this other magic stone, and he put it in a hat. You know, think of like 19th century top hat. He put it down into a hat, and he put his face down into the hat, and then kind of like magically the Book of Mormon came out. There are millions of people today who believe that they have already lived multiple lives on this earth, some as various sorts of animals. Some people actually believe that what they read in the back of a newspaper about the arrangement of stars can determine what kind of day that they are going to have. And listen, it's not just religious people who believe crazy things. It is actually the non-religious, the atheists and the agnostics that believe the craziest stuff. A few years ago, in the Wall Street Journal, they put an article about, out about a study that was called What Americans Really Believe. Right, and this study showed that traditional Christian religion greatly decreases the belief in all kinds of weird stuff like palm readers and astrology and kind of all these weird extra paranormal things. And the study also showed that it was the irreligious, it was those who didn't believe in God, that were more likely to believe in all this weird stuff like the Loch Ness Monster or Sasquatch or astrology and kind of all of this weird stuff. So it seemed that they were finding that, that atheism correlates with crazy, weird, superstitious belief. Right? It seems to be the case that he who believes in nothing will actually believe in anything. And think about it. Many key atheist beliefs require much more faith than any Christian belief. 
Like how, like a key tenet of their belief system is that something comes from nothing. Right? Everyone knows that the universe had a beginning. There was a time when it didn't exist. There used to be nothing, and then all of a sudden, one day, a long time ago, all of a sudden there's just a whole lot of something. They have no idea how that happened. They can't explain it. They don't understand it at all, but they choose to believe it anyways. That is a massive leap of faith. And the point I simply want to make is that everyone believes some crazy stuff. Right? We, we don't have a corner on the crazy market. Right? So this morning, I want to look at Mark 5, 1 through 20, and see what we can learn from this admittedly crazy story. I have no problem admitting that this story's got some weird stuff going on in it. But I also have no problem admitting that I believe this story happened 100%. So if you won't let yourself get distracted by all the demons and all the pigs, this story is ultimately about Jesus Christ. Right? This story teaches us about Him. And it is included directly after the calming of the storm for a reason. Because this story is also about the great power of Jesus Christ. This time it is Jesus' great power over the spiritual world. So this morning I want to look at Jesus' power from three different perspectives. We're going to look at Jesus' power to pursue, Jesus' power to expel, and Jesus' power to propel. All right, pursue, expel, propel. So Mark 5, 1 through 20, um, you can find it there inside your bulletin. Um, let me read it for you. This is, this is God's word. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw that the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the, the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had great mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving it for us, Father. We thank you for giving us an account of Jesus' life. 
So right now, I pray that you would focus our hearts and our minds on this story and on Jesus and on the point of this text and what it teaches us about him and about his great power. So Father, right now, I pray that you would work and your spirit would move in this place and you would apply these truths to our hearts, Father. To you be all the glory. pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to start with Jesus' power to pursue. Turn over in your Bibles to Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 65, verses 1 through 5. Remember, we've said a number of times how Isaiah is Mark's favorite prophet. And Mark is constantly using Isaiah. And I think our story this morning draws a little bit from this passage. Isaiah 65, 1 through 5. Let me, let me read it for you. This is God speaking in this passage. God says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. They are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Now, do you notice the parallels between our story and this passage? There are a number of things that are similar. Our story is about a whole bunch of demons. Well, in verse 3 of Isaiah 65, people are making sacrifices and offerings to demons. Both of these passages mention dwelling in tombs. In both passages, there is a warning to keep away, and both of them reference pigs. There are some striking similarities between the two. Well, in Romans chapter 10, verses 20 through 21, Paul takes this passage in Isaiah and he applies it to the Gentiles, which the Gentiles, it's us, all right, the non-Jews. A few verses earlier, um, Paul has said that there is no longer any distinction between Jew and Greek. And Greek and Gentile, by the way, are used interchangeably. They mean the same thing in the Bible. They're they're talking about anyone that's not a Jew. They're talking about, about us. And then he says that the same Lord is the Lord of all, and that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, this is so normal to us that it doesn't even seem like it's worth mentioning. But this was revolutionary to the Jews at this time. The Jews were God's people. They were the chosen ones. Salvation was for them. If other people wanted to be part of that, they had to become Jews. They had to be circumcised. They had to make the sacrifices. They had to follow all the cleanliness laws and all this other ritual stuff to become a Jew. And so the Jews went to great lengths to set themselves apart from the Gentiles. But here is Paul tearing down that wall. He says there is no longer any distinction. Jesus is Lord of all. He has come for the Gentiles just as much as he has come for the Jews. And again, this would have been revolutionary to Mark's readers in the first century. Well, all Paul is doing in that passage is building on what Jesus himself is doing here in our story this morning. Notice, we've spent four chapters in Mark. We're we're now a quarter of the way 
through the book. In those four chapters and in those 13 sermons, we've basically been in the exact same place the whole time. Right? Everything has happened in one general location. We've been in Galilee the entire time. And Galilee is completely Jewish. Well, now, all of a sudden, we see Jesus last week climbing into a boat, sailing across the sea to the Decapolis. Right? And Decapolis just means ten cities. Deca, ten polis cities. Ten cities. And this was a region consisting of ten major Greek cities that were east of the Jordan River. So this is Gentile territory that Jesus has come to. Remember, we're still on the, the tales of the parables of the kingdom. So Jesus here is invading alien territory. He's claiming turf that is under enemy occupation. And this shows us that there is no place in the world into which God's kingdom, His rule and His reign, does not intend to extend itself. There was a, a famous Dutch theologian about a hundred years ago. He was a pastor and he was like the prime minister. Uh, that, that hasn't happened ever since then. Um, but his name was Abraham Kuyper. And he was famous for saying, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus says, this is all mine. And by coming here in our passage this morning, Jesus is starting to hint, as Paul will later make clear, that it is not just for the Jews that he has come. In John 10, 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's what Jesus is demonstrating to us in our story this morning. He has come to seek and to save what was lost. Not just Jewish loss, but Gentile lost as well. And we're not told any other reason that Jesus sails across this entire massive lake. He gets there, the guy's there, and at the end of our story, Jesus climbs back into the boat and he sails right back to Galilee. And it seems that Jesus has come specifically just to heal this one man. And boy, did this man need healing. Besides Job, I think this man is one of the most unfortunate characters in the Bible. And Mark's description of, of his plight is disturbing. He lived separate from the rest of the society. He had been cast out and was living among the tombs. He possessed this great strength so that no one could bound him. And he spent all of his time roaming around the graveyards and screaming and cutting himself. This spiritual storm raging inside of this man seems even greater than the physical storm that the disciples had just encountered. We saw Jesus still the physical storm, and now we're going to see if he can still the spiritual storm as well. So we see great power displayed simply in Jesus' merciful pursuit of this man, which demonstrates to us his great power in pursuing us as well. It cannot be denied from Scripture that we don't first pursue a run after God of our own power. Romans 3, 10 and 11 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Jesus says in John 15, 16, You did not 
choose me, but I chose you. And we saw it just a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 1, where Jesus calls to him those whom he desires. And this is the pattern throughout Scripture. And this is what grace is. It is God's pursuit of us when we have rejected him and turned our backs on him and want nothing to do with him. You're not good enough. You are not smart enough to figure all this out on your own. I am definitely not smart enough or good enough to figure this out. The gospel is that we cannot save ourselves. But praise God that he steps in and pursues us and saves us. There is great power displayed in Jesus' pursuit and forgiveness of sinners. So we see his power in coming to and pursuing this man, but he pursues him for a reason. Jesus pursues to expel. And it is here that Jesus' power is most clearly displayed in our story this morning. Jesus possesses great power to expel, and the encounter with this man is a dramatic one. As we've seen in every one of Jesus' interactions with the demons, they immediately recognize who he is. All right, people can't figure it out. They're always confused. Like, oh, who's this Jesus? We're trying to figure it out. No, the demons always know. And they call him Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. By the way, you're not going to find that reference for Jesus on the tongue of a Jewish person. This is a very Greek designation for Jesus. All right? we, we know that Jesus is here dealing with Gentile people. That Son of the Most High God. That is a very Greek thing to say. And these unclean spirits, they recognize Jesus and they beg Him not to torment them. They, they recognize better than we do, a superior power when they see one. And again, notice that it is only Jesus that can control these otherwise uncontrollable forces. No one else could control that storm. Jesus could. Many had tried to control this man with chains and with shackles, but he always broke them. No one could subdue him, but Jesus could do it with just a word. So in verse 9, and we don't know why for sure, honestly. People argue about this. But Jesus asks the man his name. And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now the Greek term Legion is borrowed from the Latin. And it refers simply to the largest unit of the Roman army. All right, a legion was about 5,600 well-trained men. These guys were fighting machines. And legions were greatly respected and feared throughout the world. They represented the invincible power of the mighty Roman Empire. So the grip of the demons on this man resembled the grip of the Roman legions on Israel. So this was no regular demon. Right? This is the first time um, when Jesus' interactions that we have seen any sort of resistance from a demon. Not that his victory is any less guaranteed and complete. But these guys put up a fight. But they know, again, they know they've met the match in Jesus Christ. So they beg him. They do not torment us. Do not send us out of the country. And then strangely, they beg him to let them enter into this herd of pigs. Jesus does. So 2,000 pigs go rushing down off of a cliff into the sea, and all of them die. Remember last week we saw that ancient cultures feared the sea. 
They believed that the sea was the source of evil and destruction and chaos. So last week, Jesus calmed the chaos of the sea. And this week, with a word, he sends these chaotic, evil spirits right into that very same sea. Jesus is, com- is in complete control over the uncontrollable, both the physical and the spiritual. But we got to pause here for a second. Every commentary, anyone who talks about this passage, kind of it's really bothered by some of Jesus' actions here. People fight back and forth about what Jesus was doing here and how he could ethically do this. Some people really have a problem with Jesus allowing 2,000 pigs to be killed. All right? People are they're not comfortable with this move by Jesus. PETA would not be okay with what Jesus did here. Do you know PETA? Right? They're those guys, the people for the ethical treatment of animals. They're really hardcore about it, though. Now listen, I am all for the ethical treatment of animals, but I think these guys should be called PETA, people for the ethical deification of animals, because they are so obsessed with animals. Our, our culture has become so backwards that we now generally value animal life over human life. People freak out in the news about horses being used to draw carriages in the park, but they will protest and fight you to the death for their right to murder a child in the womb. The birth rate in our country is plummeting to dangerous levels, while the number and the value placed upon pets is skyrocketing, and there is a direct correlation between the two. Americans now spend more money on dog and cat food than they do on baby food. Mirabelle, between the services, told me a great story that I had to tell you guys. I'm getting illustrations from Mirabelle, so so thank you, Mirabelle. Do you guys know about this lady, Leona Helmsley from Manhattan? Do you remember her? She was just like hotel magnet. She was worth millions and millions of dollars, right? She She was big time. She died, I think, in 2007. But she was so vicious, she was known as the Queen of Mean. That was her nickname, because she was so mean and vicious in dealing um, with other people, particularly like her servants and, and the help. But she was extremely kind and obsessed with dogs. So much so that she left her dog Trouble $12 million in her will. All right? Fortune magazine um, listed that as the third dumbest business move in that year. Right? It was so ridiculous what she did. But we have gotten to a point in our culture where we value animals more than we value people. And this has started to creep its way into the Christian world as well. Right? Even Christians are increasingly choosing pets over children because we've exalted them to the same level. We call them our children. And we now increasingly look to them to provide us the love and the companionship in the place of other people. Christians, and this is, this is a fact, Christians now actually spend more money on dog food than they do on missions. Christians give more money to feed their pets than they do to serve the mission. We are apparently more concerned and committed to feeding an animal than we are to getting the gospel out to a world that is dying apart from Christ. And atheists have picked up on our over-obsession with pets, and they're taking advantage of us. Did you see this in the news two years ago? This, these atheist groups, they had this brilliant idea. These guys, are, these guys are pretty smart. They realized how ridiculous they are. We are. So they started up a pet care agency for Christians who are concerned about their pets after Jesus returns and takes all the Christians back to heaven. 
right, if you're interested, you can just go to aftertherapturepetcare.com and for the low, low price of $10, you can get some atheist volunteers to come to your house after you've gone to heaven and they'll make sure and take care of your pet while you're with Jesus, right? Ridiculous, isn't it? How much we care about our pets. But Jesus says right here in our story this morning that the life of this one man is exponentially more valuable than the life of 2,000 pigs. Because this one man was created in the image and the likeness of God. No, all dogs do not go to heaven. It's a great movie, but no dogs go to heaven. But people saved by God's grace do. People are infinitely more valuable in God's eyes than animals. And in a world that increasingly values animal life over human life, we need to make sure that we don't do the same thing. Somebody's got to stand up for human life. And that job falls to us. Now listen, don't come complain to me afterwards like, oh, pastor hates pets. No, I don't. I'm not saying that it's bad to have a pet. It's not. It can be a very good thing to have a pet as long as we keep a proper perspective about their role and about their value and about what they are. So please don't come complain to me afterwards. Pets are fine. Pets are good. Right? But I'm talking about the tendency to elevate pet life to the level of human life. That is not okay. So we honestly don't know for sure why Jesus allowed the demons to destroy these 2,000 pigs. We're, we're not told. But what we do know is that this man is so completely bound by Satan that we shouldn't be surprised that at his healing, there is an equally dramatic display of divine power to match the great demonic power. And for whatever reason, Jesus sends them into the pigs and they all go straight back into the sea and perish. But look over at verses 15 through 17. These people would have fit perfectly in our society today. They hear about what has just happened and they, and they run to Jesus to check things out. They came, they see the man who had been afflicted and tormented so greatly for so long that he is sitting down, well-dressed, in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. He has been completely changed. What a great Miracle! A human life has been preserved and restored. But no, that's not their response. They too are more concerned over the loss of their animals than the restoration of a human life. They too care more about animal life than they do about human life. They completely miss what Jesus has just done. They're devastated by their financial loss and they want Jesus gone. So they beg Him to leave. The combination of their great financial loss. And listen, 2,000 pigs at that time, that would have been a great financial loss. The combination of that and the even greater display of Jesus' amazing power frightened them. They were more comfortable with the demons than they are with the Savior. They are like the disciples in the boat last week. Give us the storm back. The storm is much less frightening than Jesus. And notice again, what an encounter with Jesus' great power elicits. Fear. These people don't know what to do with such power. Power that is far more uncontrollable and disturbing than a man with supernatural strength roaming the night and screaming and cutting himself. So they choose ease and comfort and the controllable over Jesus and they ask him to leave. 
And the saddest part of the whole story is that Jesus actually grants their request. He leaves them. After expelling the demons, Jesus, in leaving them as they are, he expels the people as well. And we see a similar thing in Romans chapter 1. We mentioned it in Sunday school. It says in there, Paul's writing that the people know God. He says that every one of you in here, whether you're a Christian or an atheist or whatever it is, every one of you deep down knows God. But, but Paul writes, he continues, he says that we have rejected that knowledge. We have suppressed it. We have exchanged the truth for a lie. And instead of worshiping the creator, we start worshiping created things like animals or like money or sex or our family. And then Paul goes on in verse 28 and says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. These people in our story this morning had their only hope of salvation staring them in the face. They knew who he was. They had seen such a clear demonstration of his great power to heal, but they rejected him. So Jesus rejected them. He expelled them. He gave them exactly what they wanted. We see that. Um, and we see all this in one of the most disturbing passages in the Bible, Matthew 7, 23. You have all these people coming to Jesus saying, hey, Jesus, we did all these great things for you. We did all these great things in your name. And Jesus replies, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus demonstrates great power in his right and his ability to expel. Jesus is the judge. He is the determiner. Listen to Jesus' own words about himself in John chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Do you see the great power of Jesus in that passage? It is Jesus who gives life to whomever he wills. It's not up to us. We cannot give lives to ourselves. We're not that important, and we're not that powerful. But Jesus is, and John 5 says that he gives life to whom he wills. And it says that the Father judges no one, but he has given that right to the Son. It all rests on Jesus. He is the dividing line. He possesses the power to expel or to accept. Do you understand that? Is, is that getting through at all? Are you on the right side of the line? Because I want to be on the side of the guy who has the power to give life to whomever he wants. I am eternally thankful and grateful to him for his grace in giving me life when I did not deserve it and when I did not seek it. So Jesus demonstrates to us great power and his right to expel. He expels the legions of the demons from this man. He saves him, he purifies him, and he brings him back to life. And in granting the people's request, he expels them from his presence. But he does not leave them completely devoid of a witness. Jesus shows us his great power to expel, but he also shows us this morning his great power to propel. The contrast between the people and the healed man is, is striking and it is intentional, right? Mark is doing this on purpose. The people beg Jesus to go and Jesus grants their request. The healed man begs to go with 
Jesus, but his request is denied. And there's another strange thing. Remember all the way back in chapter 1, when Jesus healed this leper in 144, what does he tell the leper? He says, by the way, don't say a word about this. He says, don't tell anyone about what I have done for you. And now all of a sudden, here is Jesus ordering this man to go out and tell everyone what he has done. Why? Well, I think it is simply because Jesus is now leaving this area. Right? He never comes back to this spot in Mark. He has been asked to leave, and he obliges. So by refusing the man's request to come with him, he is ensuring that he is leaving behind a faithful witness to himself in an area of great need. Plus, remember, this is Gentile territory, right? We talked a number of times about the Messianic secret, about how Jesus didn't want it to get out among the Jews because they misunderstand, understood what the Messiah was. So he didn't want them to like, take him by force and try to make him this great king over, over their land. But the Gentiles probably hadn't even heard of the Messiah. They don't know anything about all this, so there's no risk of them misunderstanding who Jesus is, so he is free to proclaim it. So he leaves behind the first ever frontier missionary. Years later, Paul would call himself the apostles to the Gentiles. But it seems that this man gets to them first. And I really want you to look there at verse 19. I think verse 19 is one of the most overlooked mission verses in the Bible. Whenever anyone preaches on missions or on evangelism, they, they preach on Matthew 28, 19, or from Acts 1 through 8, which are both great texts. But Mark 5, 19 gets no respect. And it's a shame because this verse is a beautifully simple explanation of what we are called to do in evangelism. <clears throat> Jesus says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had great mercy on you. Listen, most of us, I was a kid, I, I, I was younger and I had to deal with this too, and I was terrified as well. Most of us, when we think of evangelism, we get terrified because we think that evangelism is just going door to door, kind of ringing the doorbell, then kind of awkwardly and uncomfortably waiting, and then when the person comes to the front, we say something strange like, can you spare just a couple minutes for, for your eternity, or something awkward like that, right? It's always kind of weird and uncomfortable. Or we think of evangelism just as standing out on a street corner and handing out tracts. So we think of it as just this really loud guy with a microphone strapped or a speaker strapped to his chest kind of yelling at people and telling them how sinful they are. But look at what Jesus tells this man to do. I want this verse to be an encouragement to us and to embolden us evangelistically. Go tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had great mercy on you. That's evangelism. That's it. It's that simple. We don't have to complicate the matter. We don't have to make it awkward or uncomfortable or combative. Evangelism is simply telling people we come into contact with about the great mercy God has had on us and how much we are thankful for that and how much Jesus Christ has changed our lives. It shouldn't be this forced, awkward, kind of weird, unnatural thing. It should just be this natural everyday part of our lives. Listen, we're all called to evangelize. But when you think of evangelism, I want you to start thinking of this verse. Mark 5, 19. Simply start by going to someone that you know well and that you talk with regularly and tell them what God means to you. 
It's quite simple. Even easier, invite them to church and I will tell them for you. All right, that's, that's all we have to do in evangelism. So I want us to remember this verse. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how He has had great mercy on you. That is my challenge to you this morning. Don't yell at someone. Don't pick a fight. Don't shove a track in their face. But in the course of your everyday conversation, just mention how much God means to you and how much He has done for you in Jesus Christ. Because He has done so much. He has had great mercy on you. And that is the gospel. Notice the difference between how the people treated Legion and how Jesus treated Legion. The people try to ignore him. They try to hide him away and kind of separate him back there, out of sight, out of mind. They, they try to physically restrain him with these great chains, but none of it works. They can only try and control him from the outside, and it fails every time. And this is what we try to do apart from Jesus. This is what religion tries to do. It tries to bind you up with all these chains of rules and regulations. It tells you if you just keep these rules, if you're just good enough, that God will be impressed and He'll save you. We try from the outside to change our behavior with rules and regulations. Every January 1st, we set all these New Year's kind of things that we're going to do. And what happens? Two weeks later, we're right back doing the exact same thing. Because rules cannot change us. We cannot be changed from the outside. Religion cannot change you, and it cannot save you. But Jesus can. Right? He doesn't give you a bunch of rules to keep. He's not concerned with first changing the outside. Jesus starts on the inside. He goes straight for the heart. And that is the only way that we can actually be changed. And that's the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion is rules. The gospel is relationship. Religion is concerned with the outside. The gospel is concerned with the inside. Religion is what we do. The gospel is what God has done for us. Do you get the difference? Because the two are completely the opposite. James could not restrain this man. But a word from Jesus, and he is clothed in his right mind and following him. Do you see the great power and grace of Jesus in the pursuit of this man? This was not a man seeking after God, was he? No, he wasn't checking out churches and going from Bible study to Bible study, trying to decide what to do with this Jesus guy. He was under the control of an army of demons. He was in the hands of the evil one. But Jesus shows up, he storms the gate, and he comes and gets him. Jesus sails across an entire lake. He takes the initiative, he acts, and he gracefully intervenes in this man's life and saves him. Praise God that Jesus Christ is the great pursuer. There's a beautiful poem from the 20th century um, called The Hound of Heaven about Jesus. And it's about how Jesus is the great hound that pursues after and gets and saves sinners. Praise God that He comes after us because contrary to what religion says, we cannot save ourselves. At the very beginning of John 1-13, through um, John writes um, that it is those that are saved, those that are reborn, they are not born of the will of man, but of God. Romans 9.16 says quite clearly, it depends not on human will, 
but on God who has mercy. That is the gospel. Jesus demonstrates to us great grace and great power in his pursuit of us. And he demonstrates great power when he expels our demons and saves us. Honestly, were really of us any better off, were really any of us better off than this man? 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 John 3.10 says, By this is it, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Well, if you take that in conjunction with Romans 3.10 that says no one is righteous, that means that all of us, before the grace of God, were children of the devil. Eternally, we were just as in bad of shape as this man was. But thank God that Jesus Christ has great power to expel. And this is ultimately displayed by his power to expel our sin. The one thing that is keeping us from God. Jesus expels sin by accepting sin. He gets rid of our sin by taking it on himself. He takes our place. He dies in our place. He pays the penalty that we earn and he gives us his life. We do not earn it. We do not do it. It is all grace. I've said before that whomever God justifies, he also sanctifies. Which just means that whomever sin he expels, he then also propels them out. He doesn't just save us so that we can sit around and come to a nice church and, you know, take it easy. No, he saves us to send us. Jesus saves us to send us. In Matthew 28, the beginning of the Great Commission, Jesus starts by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The commission is rooted in the power of Jesus. He demonstrates great power in sending us out. He makes us his ambassadors. He entrusts to us the ministry of reconciliation. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had great mercy on you. Have you ever done that? If not, maybe you don't believe that he has done that much for you or had that much mercy on you. Maybe you have not understood the gospel because this crazy story this morning is all about Jesus. He is the point of everything. He has demonstrated amazing power to us these last few weeks. The power over nature to calm physical storms and the power over demons to calm spiritual storms. He's in control. He's in charge. He is the one who has grace on us and pursues us. He expels and then he propels. Do you know this Jesus? Have you ever been amazed or struck down or been uncomfortable by the great power of this man? And again, we see in our story that there are only two responses to Jesus. The, the townspeople reject him, they want nothing to do with him, and they send him away. The healed man sits down at his feet and becomes his disciple. Which have you done? Have you done either? Or are you, like many Christians, by name only, just mildly interested in Jesus? You come to church on Sunday mornings, but other than that, you're no different than anyone else around you. You never read the Word. You don't care about the things of God. Jesus doesn't actually make a difference in your life. Because a real um, relationship with Jesus always makes a difference. 
Right? Look at the great difference of this man before and after Jesus. When God saves us, He always changes us. Are you following this man of great power? Because he is the only one that can actually do what needs to be done. He is the only one that can provide you any rest, any meaning, any fulfillment, and any life. It's all about Christ. He pursues, he expels, and he propels us. As we go from this place to, to go out and to tell others how much he has done for us and the great mercy Jesus Christ has displayed to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the good news of the gospel, Father, that when we rejected you, we had made ourselves your enemy, Father. You had mercy on us and pursued us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that it is the cross, Father, where we see your perfect love and your perfect justice unfulfilled. We thank you for sending one willing to come and stand in our place and take on our punishment for us. Father, we confess our sin. Father, we confess that we are so prone to wander from you and to reject you. We thank you that you are faithful through your Son to bring us back. Father, we thank you for grace and mercy. We thank you for the great power of Jesus Christ. That we can trust him, Father, that we don't have to worry. Father, the, the one who can control storms and the one who can cast out demons and the one who can save souls, Father, is powerful enough to preserve us and to protect us and to comfort us. So, Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ. I pray right now, Father, that your spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds. Father, take um, this message, Father, and just apply it to people's hearts. Father, where I have gotten it wrong, or I have explained poorly, Father, I pray that your spirit would illuminate and apply it to people's hearts. I pray that you would work, Father. You can work um, um, through anything. It's not about me, it's about you. I pray that you would work in people's hearts this morning, Father, for your glory. Thank you for this time, Father. We thank you for, for giving us the word. I pray that you would give us the heart and the desire to, to know it and to cherish it, Father, and to study it. We pray um, that you would um, just bless this time and bless us as we go from this place. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name.